Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for April 21st, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. With us for the full hour is Vox.com legal journalist Ian Milheiser. We'll be discussing his latest book, The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America, just out from Columbia Global Reports. Before his current work at Vox, Ian Milheiser was Senior Constitutional Policy Analyst at the Center for American Progress. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The American Prospect, Politico, as well as the National Law Journal, the Yale Law and Policy Review, and the Duke Law Journal. We spoke with Ian Milheiser on April 19th, 2021. Thanks for joining us today on Forthright Radio, Ian Milheiser. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Ian, your latest book is The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America, published by Columbia Global Reports. In it, you assert that at least since 2011, when the Republican Party gained control of Congress, and while they were in the majority, they passed only one significant piece of legislation, the tax bill of 2017, and that the Supreme Court has become, and I'm quoting you here, the locus of policymaking in the United States, end of the quote, and that this constitutes a danger to democracy. Would you share with our listeners what the Supreme Court did in those years that makes you say this? Sure. So, I mean, part of the story here is, like you said, we're coming to the end of a lost decade in Congress, you know, from 2011 when Republicans took the House until 2020 when the pandemic really made it untenable for Congress to do nothing. Congress was almost a non-entity in our policymaking, which is, you know, not exactly what the framers of our Constitution expected it to be. And in that same period, the Supreme Court dismantled much of our campaign finance law. It hobbled the Voting Rights Act. It weakened the ban on sexual harassment. It said that religious liberty claims can be used to overcome employees' rights. It halted President Obama's um, best effort to fight climate change. It weakened unions. And then just so you don't think that it's all bad news for liberals, there was also the marriage equality decision. So the Supreme Court was really busy. The Supreme Court did far more to change U.S. policy in that gate than either the elected branches were able to do. And I expect that we're going to see this trend accelerate in the coming years. John Roberts, in his confirmation hearing, very famously said that it's not the business of judges and particularly Supreme Court justices to make law, but to just be umpires in framing what the Constitution says, etc. And for a very long time, at least since Reagan became president, there's been this orthodoxy in the Republican Party, that judicial restraint is what should be advocated, not judicial activism. That is kind of changing now. And you do a very interesting job of explaining 
what's going on here that there is a time lag with a generational shift. Would you please explain how you see that happening? Sure. So, I mean, there's really a consensus among both parties, at least starting in the 30s or 40s, that we don't want the one elected branch of government to be setting our policy. And so if you look at what Richard Nixon had to say about the courts, what Ronald Reagan had to say, or even what George W. Bush had to say about the courts. I mean, George W. Bush would rail against judges who legislate from the bench. He wanted the courts to do less. And I think the turning point came with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. The legal theories that were rallied against the Affordable Care Act and that are still being rallied against the Affordable Care Act are very, very hard to justify under the precedent that existed when those decisions came up. I mean, they really were stretching the law as it existed. And I think the reason for that is that why we saw this this turn come is that if you are a conservative since the 1980s, You've really only been mad at the court when it did show restraint, when it didn't strike down the Affordable Care Act, when it didn't strike down affirmative action, when it didn't strike down something that conservatives don't like. And so generations of conservatives who are now in their 40s and 50s have grown up wanting the court to do more. And so if you're, say, Neil Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch has Maybe he was mad at the at the marriage equality decision, but Gorsuch personally is an anti-gay, but he does want a lot of government programs to be struck down. And so he spent his early and middle adult years being mad at the court for not doing enough, and now he's there and he wants it to do a whole lot more. So you're not seeing this, as some do, as a question of hypocrisy. Is that so? I mean, I'm sure I could find individuals who are hypocrites, but I think that if you look at people like Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, Trump's judges on the Supreme Court, I think that they have developed an in, largely an internally consistent theory that leads to the courts striking down a whole lot more laws and you know, doing a whole lot more to set our public policy. But I think that the question that we have to ask as citizens who are supposed to be living in a democratic nation is why would we want that philosophy to be implemented? If I don't like the direction that my country is going in, I want to be able to vote in someone who will do a better job. And you can vote in a better Congress, you can vote in a better president, but you can't do squat about the Supreme Court. I mean, you can wait until a seat comes open and hope that a president of your party is able to appoint someone to fill that seat. But the court is the closest thing that we have to medieval barons. They serve for life. They wield tremendous power. They never stand for election. And I would think that we would want that branch of government to be the least powerful branch for that reason. Okay, so you just brought up voting and democracy. Mm -hmm. Over the years, we've done many, many shows chronicling the organized efforts. Some even call it conspiracy, although that word is so overused these days, I don't dare actually use it. But concerted legal efforts since the mid-1960s when Barry Goldwater was defeated by, among others, the Koch brothers to overturn the liberal trends of the New Deal and specifically focusing on gaining control of the Supreme Court. 
And in your book, The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America, Ian Milheiser, you focus on four different aspects of that. And the first of them is the right to vote. So would you please talk about how the Supreme Court specifically has gone to undermine the democratic principles of the United States vis-a-vis the right to vote? Look at what's happening in Georgia right now. So in Georgia, historically, it had been a state that had voted, that voted for Republicans. I think the last time a Democrat won the state of Georgia in a presidential run was in 1992. And then the demographics of the state shifted. The views of many people in the state shifted. And in 2020, not only did Joe Biden win, but the state elected two Democratic senators. And so what has the state done? It's tried to make it, you know, the the Republicans who still control the legislature have tried to make it much, much harder to vote and have even made it possible for them to take over local election boards so they could potentially shut down precincts in certain neighborhoods or disqualify certain people from being able to vote in the first place. They're doing this because they think they can get away with it. And they, they think they can get away with it because the Supreme Court is signaling to them that they can get away with it. The primary mechanism that we use to fight racist voting tactics in the United States is the Voting Rights Act. And you have to talk about race when you talk about voting rights. And and the reason why is that in any given, at least recent American election, you see a pattern where about 80 to 90 percent of African Americans will vote for the Democrat and about 60 to 70 percent of Latinos will vote for the Democrat. And so if you are a Georgia state lawmaker and your goal is to disenfranchise Democrats, what you can do is you can use race as a proxy to identify where the Democratic communities are. So you can say, OK, like there's a lot of Dem- there's a lot of black people in this neighborhood in Atlanta. So if we shut down four polling precincts in that neighborhood, then we know that the people who are going to be forced to wait in line for several hours and now they can't even get a bottle of water while they're waiting in line, those people will be Democrats. And so we see states using race as a proxy in order to go after Democrats. The Supreme Court's been dismantling the Voting Rights Act. There are three prongs to the Voting Rights Act. And as I explained in the book, they've already dismantled two of them. And so We are now coming close to the end game of this process, where as the court starts upholding more and more attacks on voting rights, states are going to become bolder and bolder about what they do in in order to try to take voting rights away from people. I think that Georgia is just our first taste of that. Back to John Roberts. Mm -hmm. He seems like when you see him in public, which is kind of rare, he always seems like very mild mannered, probably a nice guy, all this kind of stuff. But you document going way back to 1982 when the Voting Rights Act was also being litigated and the question of intent and racially discriminatory results were being talked about. And you document that as a Department of Justice young attorney, John Roberts authored 26 memos opposing the effects test of Section 2 on the grounds of states' rights. Would you expand on that and tell us what happened? Sure. I think 
it's important to understand. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I've shaken hands with, with Chief Justice Roberts before. He's a perfectly personable guy. You, you don't normally get that kind of job if you're not able to get along with people. But he's extraordinarily conservative. And I mean, one thing that he has said throughout his career is he said that in almost all cases, he thinks that voting rules should be set by state and local government, that state and local governments have tremendous power to decide what the voting rights regime should be in their state. And I mean, if you take that view seriously, I, I mean, if you take seriously the notion that states should be able to set their voting rights regimes, then we know what sort of regimes Mississippi and Alabama came up with when they had complete control over their voting rights regimes. You know, I, I don't know that Roberts would, would roll us back that far, but we know that he will roll us back pretty far. I said before, there's three prongs to the Voting Rights Act. The first is preclearance. It's, if you have a state with a history of racist election practices, they have to preclear, that's the term that the law uses, any new voting law with officials in Washington, D.C. The second is called the intent test. If a law is passed with the intent to uh, discriminate on the basis of race, then that law will typically get struck down. And the third is called the results test. It's a little complicated, but basically certain laws that have a disproportionate impact on voters of color will also be struck down. And the court basically got rid of preclearance in the 2013 Shelby County decision. In a case called Abbott v. Perez in 2018, they said that the burden of proof on plaintiffs to prove intent is so high that it's it's almost unsurmountable. It's, it's nearly impossible to win those cases anymore. And then there's a case in front of the court this term that could get rid of the results test. So if you don't have the preclearance and you don't have the intent test and you don't have the results test, you don't have a Voting Rights Act. And then you don't have any real safeguards against the sort of Mississippi-style rate in the 1950s racism. Do I think that John Roberts is a cartoon villain? No, I mean, he's not, he's not Skeletor. But he believes very strongly in ideas that are inconsistent with the notion of a pluralistic democracy. And then in this most recent presidential election under a pandemic, there's been all sorts of stuff going on around voting. And it reminded us that in the Constitution, the power to oversee elections is, in fact, granted to the legislatures in the state. But then the controversy arises, well, what do we mean by legislature? Would you talk about the controversies around that and how the Supreme Court has and may in the future determine that? Yeah, this is, I mean, it's very technical, but it's very frightening. So there are two provisions of the Constitution that says that state legislatures generally have the power to set their own election law. And the way that that word legislature has always been interpreted, there's more than 100 years of precedent on this, is that it means whatever the body is within that state that has the power to make laws. So that could be the actual elected body of representatives that we often call refer to as a legislature. That could be the legislative branch, plus the governor has the power to veto any bills that are passed by the legislative branch in the state. That could be a, the legislative branch, but it is constrained by the state constitution because the state constitution 
might say certain voting laws are illegal. It might be the state's laws passed by the legislature, but interpreted by the courts in that state. You know, whatever the power is to make laws in that state, that's who gets to decide. This wasn't an attempt to say which branch of state government should be setting election law. And that's been the rule for as long as anyone can remember. And you now have four justices and probably five. Barrett hasn't weighed in on this yet. But shortly before the election, four justices started saying, no, no, when it when it says legislature, it means literally only the legislative branch in the state, only the elected body of representatives. And if you take that seriously, that could mean that the governor can't veto election laws. It could mean that state Supreme Courts can't enforce voting rights protections. It can mean that you can't have independent commissions that protect against gerrymandering. And all of this is happening in a broader context. The broader context is that you have states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, pretty crucial states, that have gerrymandered state legislatures that ensure that Republicans will hold on to them possibly forever. And that have Democratic governors and in some cases, Democratic state Supreme Courts. And the question is, we're coming into a redistricting cycle. If the Wisconsin state legislature passes a gerrymandered bill that gives all of the state's congressional seats to the Republicans, no matter what, is the governor allowed to veto that bill? If the Pennsylvania state legislature, which is also very gerrymandered, passes a similar bill giving all of Pennsylvania's congressional seats to the Republican Party, is the state Supreme Court allowed to step in and say, no, that violates our state constitution? And so I am really worried that in these gerrymandered states where they essentially don't have free and fair elections to choose their state legislature, the Supreme Court is going to say, well, that gerrymandered legislature, which was not elected by a majority of the people, nonetheless has complete power to decide what the state's election law is going to look like. I believe I recall there was talk in this last election, in the 2020 presidential election in Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly, there was talk that the legislature was going to overturn the contested vote and choose who the presidential votes from Pennsylvania would go to. Did you hear that also? And if so, is that something that would eventually go to the Supreme Court, that kind of conflict? Yeah, I mean, this is something I think we really need to worry about in 2024. So the the Constitution, I, I mean, and this actually isn't controversial. The Constitution says that electors shall be like presidential electors, members of the Electoral College, shall be chosen in the manner determined by the state legislature. And so in theory, a state legislature, possibly with a gubernatorial veto and all that in play, but in theory, a state legislature could just choose a bunch of people and say, you guys are our slate. We're not going to have an election for president this year. That hasn't been done in a really long time. Like by 1830, I think, every single state except for South Carolina had a law saying that we're going to have an election to choose our presidential electors. And by 1860, South Carolina got with the program. So, you know, for about 150 years, we've been choosing our presidents through elections, but the Constitution doesn't actually require that. 
the Constitution is understood, uh, has been historically understood to say that once a, an election has happened, the state is stuck with it. So if, if Michigan holds an election and Michigan votes for Joe Biden, the legislature can't turn around after that election and say, oh, we don't like that result. So we're going to toss it out and give it to Donald Trump. But there's no guarantee that this Supreme Court is going to stick by that. So you could see states in 2024 which vote to reelect Joe Biden. And then the state legislature turns around and says, we don't like that result, so we're going to toss it out and give those votes to the Republican. This is an even more worrying circumstance because if they do it in advance, it's not even clear to me that they can't do this. But like, you could potentially see a state with a Republican state legislature say, oh, we're just not going to hold an election at all. We're automatically going to give our electoral votes to the Republican candidate no matter what the voters think. A lot of our democracy is built on norms. It's built on the notion that for 150 years, it's just been unthinkable that a state would say, oh, yeah, we're going to cancel our election and just give our presidential elector electors to whatever some powerful people in the state want. But I, I think given the Republican Party's turn against democracy in recent years, there's a real chance that that, that, that norm could be broken. Ian Milheiser, your article in Vox on April 17th, 2021, headlined, The Supreme Court Hears a Case Next Week That Could Make Citizens United Even Worse. And that case is Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Rodriguez. And you write, to fully understand it, it's important to keep in mind the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United versus FEC from 2010. Very briefly, would you talk about this case that will be going on April 26th? Yeah, so this is being argued this Monday. And the issue in the case, so Citizens United had two holdings. I mean, one is the holding that everyone knows and hates that said that corporations can spend unlimited money on elections. But the other holding, which was much more moderate and was joined by eight justices, generally disclosure laws are okay. Like, you know, a, a state can say to campaign donors that if they give money, that it has to be disclosed in some public way. If someone wants to run an ad, the state can, or, or the federal government can require them to put a disclaimer at the bottom of the ad saying, this ad was paid for by the Americans for Prosperity Foundation or whoever paid for it. That's how the rule has always worked, is disclosure laws are generally allowed. There are exceptions to this in extreme cases. The most famous one was in the 1950s when... Alabama tried to force the NAACP to disclose its members, and the Supreme Court said no because everyone knew what Alabama wanted to do was send the Ku Klux Klan after the NAACP's members. But absent those sort of extreme circumstances, the general rule is that disclosure laws are allowed. And this case wants to turn that presumption on its head. The plaintiffs are, I mean, it's somewhat complicated what they're asking for, but basically, they are claiming that disclosure laws should generally not be allowed, except in the specific context of an election. If some group wants to run an ad saying, don't vote for Congressman Smith, then the disclosure law would apply. But if they want to say, Congressman Smith is very bad, and here's why, you look at all these bad bills that he voted for, it's not at all clear that disclosure laws would apply to that message at all. 
And so this is potentially a very serious attack on our ability to know who is spending gobs of money in order to influence our elections, because the distinction that the plaintiffs want to draw here between election, the electoral context and the non-electoral context, it just isn't a very robust distinction. I mean, like I said, like if you can't run an ad saying don't vote for Congressman Smith, you could still potentially run a so-called issue ad saying, well, Congressman Smith is very, very bad, and this is why. And it's going to have the same effect. You have written in the past uh, about what is now being talked about much more, and that's court packing. And you have an article on April 14th entitled, A New Bill Would Add Four Seats to the Supreme Court. Would you run through with us the pros and cons of that, and especially in our current situation? Basically, the Constitution does not set the number of justices who sits on the Supreme Court. It it has been in the past as few as five and as many as ten. Congress can decide how many seats there are on the Supreme Court. And so in theory, Congress could pass a bill. That's what this bill does. It would add four seats to the Supreme Court. And because Joe Biden is president, he would get to appoint people to those four seats. And were this to become law, then there would be 13 seats and a majority of them would be controlled by Democratic appointees. So it would essentially neutralize Trump's effort to capture so much of the Supreme Court. It is an interesting bill. I think there are obvious downsides to adding seats to the court. For example, I think that if this bill were to become law, I don't think that the governor of Texas is going to say, oh, well, I guess I'm stuck with Roe v. Wade now. You would see massive resistance from red state governors and the like towards basically anything that the Supreme Court did that they didn't like. And so that's a serious price. The price of adding seats to the court is very high. The flip side of that is that if the court is in fact going to dismantle our democracy, if the court is going to say that it is going to so dismantle our voting rights laws that we no longer have a meaningful opportunity to elect a Congress that isn't controlled by Republicans or a president who isn't a Republican, then I think you have to do everything that you can to stop that, potentially including adding seats to the Supreme Court. Now, what I hope happens is that, why does the United States have a nuclear arsenal? You know, we we have it so we never have to use it. The threat of the missiles are enough to prevent people from attacking us. And I would hope that this court packing bill would have a similar effect, where justices who may be inclined to go after our democracy say, well, you know, there's the Democratic Congress right now, and they could pass that bill, and then we're out of luck. So maybe we should we should hold our fire for a little while because there could be consequences for us if we push too far. That's, I think, the best case scenario. And then maybe we then you don't need to pass the bill. But if it becomes clear that the Supreme Court is so attacking our democracy that we aren't going to have competitive elections anymore at the national level. You know, I mean, they'll, they'll still be Democrats elected to Congress, but they'll always be in the minority. Then I think you have to start thinking about very radical solutions because you can't lose your democracy. Well, in that article, a new bill would add four seats to the Supreme Court. You state that the current situation we find ourselves in 
which President Trump was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices, was in fact very undemocratic. Would you briefly explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, our democracy is already in trouble. So for four years, we had a president who wasn't elected. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by nearly three million votes. And the only reason he got to be president for four years is because our system essentially gives extra votes to voters in rural Michigan and not much doesn't really care what, like, say, people in L.A. have to say because of the Electoral College. The the Senate is actually even worse. I saw one study recently which said that if the Senate was not malapportioned, if it wasn't set up so that Wyoming gets two senators and California gets two senators, even though there's 68 times as many people in California as there are in Wyoming, if it wasn't set up like that, if it was fair, then Democrats would have controlled the Senate consistently since the late 90s. And so what does that mean for the Supreme Court? Well, it means that we have a president who wasn't elected. All three of his justices were confirmed by a block of senators who represent less than half the country. So you have a minority president who is appointing minority justices who are being confirmed by a block of the Senate that represents a minority of the country. And I don't know what you call that, but it's not democracy. You now have a third of the seats on the Supreme Court controlled by justices who have no democratic legitimacy. And I think that bolsters the case for both for radical action against, but also it bolsters the case for why we want this court to be more restrained. Because if they got there fair and square, that would be one thing. But a third of the seats, the only reason why they're there is because we have this pathological system that doesn't treat everyone's vote the same. Before we move on from the Supreme Court, you have an April 10th, 2021 article in Vox headlined, Biden's Supreme Court Reform Commission Won't Fix Anything. You're kind of critical of it. Would you share what your criticisms are? At the end of the 2020 election, Justice Ginsburg died. And this is when you started to hear serious talk about things like court packing, because a lot of Democrats were already mad about what happened to Merrick Garland, where Obama's nominee was denied a confirmation vote. Republicans said it was because, oh, no, it's very improper to confirm someone in a presidential election year. You, you just can't do that. And then Justice Ginsburg dies less than two months before the election, and they confirmed Amy Coney Barrett eight days before the election. So Democrats were mad, and Joe Biden was getting a lot of pressure to endorse things like adding seats to the Supreme Court because Democrats did not want these tactics by Republicans to enable the Supreme Court to sabotage Biden's entire presidency. And Biden basically punted on the issue. He said, "Okay, I'm going to form this commission after I'm president, and I'm not going to tell you what I think about court packing now, but I'll form this commission and we'll come up with recommendations and then we'll go from there. I've looked at the members of the commission. It's it's a smart group of people, but it is a smart group of people that doesn't include anyone who I recognize as being particularly outspoken on court reform. And, you, you know, there's a lot of people who I know wanted to get on the commission, who've been writing in this space for a long time, and they are on the commission. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that Joe Biden does not want to go there, that he wants 
he's going to live with the six Republican justices we have for as long as he has to live with them. I will be curious to see. And again, I think a lot of what happens in the future depends on what the Supreme Court does. There's a case in front of the court right now that could strike down what remains of the Voting Rights Act. There's a case in front of the Supreme Court right now that could strike down the Affordable Care Act. And so after a series of outrages from the Supreme Court, I suspect that Democrats like Biden, who are uncomfortable with more radical solutions, may become quite comfortable with them. It is ultimately in the hands of the Supreme Court. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Supreme Court should strike down the Voting Rights Act. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court should strike down Obamacare. So the best play, if the justices don't want to have to find out what happens if they start handing down decisions like that, is to just not hand them down in the first place. We're speaking with Ian Milheiser. His latest book is The Agenda. How a Republican Supreme Court is reshaping America. Okay, so you brought up about how current President Biden is going to be interacting with the Supreme Court. And one of the sections in your book in the agenda is dismantling the administrative state. And you mention in there, and I'm quoting you now, One of Justice Scalia's last acts on Earth may have been to doom the planet. Talk about what happened on February 9th, 2016, dealing with the Clean Power Plan. Sure. So the Clean Power Plan was the Obama administration's best effort to fight climate change. And it's a fairly complicated plan. The long-term goal of the plan was to shift energy generation away from things like coal, which are very dirty, and towards things that are cleaner, which include natural gas and solar and wind and other things that just aren't as dirty as as coal. And there's a law that lets them do this. It's called the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act says that certain power plants should use the best available technology in order to reduce emissions from that plant. And the EPA has the power to determine, I mean, it's it's not arbitrary. The EPA is supposed to look at what existing technology is available and determine at any given moment what the best available technology is in order to reduce emissions. And then it issues what are called regulations telling power plants, okay, this is how you're going to generate energy from, from this point. And the Supreme Court didn't just block the clean power plant. It is very hostile to the idea that Congress can delegate this kind of regulatory power to an agency in the first place. And so the worst case now, you could see the Clean Power, you could see the Clean Air Act strike down, you could see the Clean Water Act struck down. There is a case making its way up to the court right now that I think is probably going to win that says that so there's several provisions of the Affordable Care Act which allow certain departments or certain agencies within the Department of Health and Human Services to require health insurers to cover certain preventative care treatments for free. So pap smears have to be covered for free. Birth control has to be covered for free. Certain cancer screening, certain pediatric care, vision screening for children. There's a long list, about 80 different treatments that have to be covered without any kind of cost sharing, without any kind of copay or anything like that. 
And there's a lawsuit right now that seeks to get that entire list struck down. And based on what the Supreme Court has said about being hostile to the notion that Congress can give an agency the power to do something like place items on that list, things that insurers are required to cover, I think it's very likely this lawsuit is going to prevail and people are going to lose their free birth control and they're going to lose their free cancer screenings. So the stakes here are really, really high. I mean, when I say the words administrative law, even lawyers' eyes glaze over and people go to sleep. But the stakes here are whether or not someone's going to catch that you have cancer fast enough to treat it. The stakes are whether or not people continue to have access to birth control. The, the stakes here or whether or not we breathe clean air and whether we drink clean water. I'm going to quote you again in that section of your book. Trump's election could prove to be one of the single most important events in human history. It could strip the United States of its ability to address climate change for the foreseeable future. That's the end of the quote then. Even if Biden wants to implement something like the Clean Power Plan, it is highly unlikely that the Supreme Court's Republican majority will let him do so. And this is another example of policymaking if the Supreme Court is stripping the executive branch of much of its power to issue binding regulations. Right. And I, like, I think the bottom line here is that Barack Obama was elected. Joe Biden was elected. The Congress that passed the Clean Air Act and that gave the EPA the power to implement these policies, they were elected. The EPA is led by someone who's appointed by elected president. No one was elected to the Supreme Court. And three of the justices were appointed by a president who wasn't even elected. And so, again, the question is, who do you want making these decisions? You want these decisions to be in the hands of someone who is accountable to the people that we can throw out of office if, if, if we don't like them? Or do you want these decisions to be in the hands of the closest thing that we have to medieval nobility? Just to be clear, Mr. Trump was elected not by a majority of the people who voted, but by the Electoral College. So there's that. You have written elsewhere about what is known as the shadow docket. And mm -hmm. under Mr. Trump's administration, the use of shadow dockets went to extraordinary lengths, unprecedented, actually, in recent history. Would you please explain what is meant by the shadow docket and how it was implemented under the Trump administration? Sure. So, I mean, normally when the court decides a case, there's a process that they're supposed to use. So they're supposed to wait for the lower courts to do what they're going to do with the case. And then the party that wants the Supreme Court to review a lower court's decision writes what's called a petition for writ of certiorari. And the Supreme Court reads that petition. And then if they decide to grant that petition, then the, the two parties have months to write briefs. And then there's an oral argument, and then normally there's a period of several months where the justices deliberate amongst themselves, and then they write an opinion. And the purpose of that process, the reason you want a really long, drawn-out process there, is because the Supreme Court has the final word on a lot of things, most questions of U.S. law. And so if the Supreme Court gets it wrong, 
you're just you're just stuck with it. You know, they're, 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 then you know, you know, there's no one that can overrule the Supreme Court. What you saw, and I mean, it's not like this never happened in the past, but it went from something, it went from being something that that was very rare to being something that happened all the time. What you saw happen under Trump is that a lower court would hand down a decision that Trump didn't like. You know, maybe it suspended one of his immigration policies. Maybe it suspended one of his abortion policies. Didn't matter what it was. It would be some policy that Trump didn't like. And his lawyers would run to the Supreme Court and say, oh, you need to block this. You need to rule in our favor right away. And we're not going to go to the trouble of arguing you're not going to get full briefing on this. In some cases, the justices would make the decision within days of hearing about what the lower court had done. And I mean, first of all, I think it's troubling. It's never good when when you see judges who seem to go out of their way to break the rules, to break the normal procedures that are that are ordinarily in place, and they do it over and over again to favor one person. Like that that's just not something that you want to see from judges. But more than that, the reason you want the Supreme Court to spend months thinking about these things and not days is because they could get it wrong. And and if they get it wrong, then we're all stuck with their mistake. In that article, you quote a paper by University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek, quote, Mm -hmm. during the 16 years of the George W. Bush and Obama administrations, the Solicitor General filed a total of eight such applications, averaging one every other term. By contrast, in less than three years, Trump's Solicitor General has filed at least 21 applications for stays in the Supreme Court, including 10 during the October 2018 term alone. And of these cases, the Trump administration achieved a full or partial victory in about two-thirds of the cases. So anyway, we're, norms are just getting wiped out right and left, and not only at the Supreme Court. Okay, Ian Milhauser, on to religion, which you also deal with in your book, The Agenda. Talk about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 and how it was originally intended and how it's being applied now. The scary thing about the court's religion cases is that they're moving so fast in this space that, like, there have been new developments since, just since my book came out two weeks ago. So historically, one important question under our Constitution is what should happen when someone has a religious objection to following a particular law? Like the classic cases involved Saturday Sabbatarians, people who believe that they that they had a religious obligation not to work on Saturday. And if they were somehow pressured by a state unemployment law or something like that to work on Saturday, should they get an exemption? And, you know, and in those cases, the Supreme Court typically said yes. And, and I think that's the right call. There are a lot of cases involving men who grow beards because they belong to a faith. You know, sometimes it's Muslims, sometimes it's Sikhs, but they belong to a faith where they believe they have a religious obligation to grow a beard. 
And some of these cases involve prisoners. Some of them involve people like cops or firefighters who are in jobs where the requirement of their job is that they have to be clean shaven. And the question is whether this individual who has a religious objection to this requirement should get an exemption and should be allowed to grow a beard. And I think in those cases, the answer to that should be yes as well. The new category of cases are cases where someone has a religious objection, and if they are allowed an exemption from the law that they object to, it diminishes the rights of someone else. So, you know, this was the Hobby Lobby case, which said that a business owner who objects to birth control can effectively deny birth control coverage to their own employees. There's a lot of cases involving people who are anti-gay or anti-trans. And they say, I don't want to hire a gay person. I don't want to hire a trans person. I don't want to serve. I don't want my company to serve a person who is gay or to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple. And the question is whether their religious objection should trump the right of someone else. Now, I, I said that there are some new developments here. The, the, the newest development is that there have been a whole line of cases involving COVID. There have been states have laws saying that you can't have but so many people gather in the same place at the same time in order to prevent the spread of COVID. And churches and, you know, in some cases, other houses of worship have sued saying, you know, that rule shouldn't apply to us because we have a religious objection to it. And the Supreme Court has now very consistently, since Barrett got there and they got a new majority, has very consistently said that the state's interest in protecting people from COVID is subordinate to the rights of religious objectors. So someone with a religious objection can literally encourage the spread of a deadly disease in order to have their objection honored. And this is very radical. This is not how the court has operated in the past. And in the past, before Hobby Lobby, the court said, yes, you have you know, you have many rights if you are a religious objector. The people who wanted to grow the beard can, draw, can grow the beard. The people who are Saturday Sabbatarians can take Saturday off, and that's fine, because it doesn't hurt anyone if they take Saturday off. It doesn't hurt anyone if they grow a beard. But if you start to do stuff that takes rights away from other people, the rule used to be that, no, you don't get to take away other people's rights. You don't get to put other people in danger. And now the Supreme Court is starting to say that the rights of at least certain people of certain faiths, mostly conservative Christians, trump the rights of other people. And that's, I think, that is a very new development. I think it's a very frightening development. But didn't the door get opened to that proposal by these religious groups because other parts of society were opening, some bars were opening, barbershops were opening. And so they said that their rights were being, they were being discriminated against because they were not being allowed to uh, meet in their own homes. Right. Yeah, I mean, th that is the claim is they've claimed it's discrimination. But oh, look, I mean, the law requires you to treat things that are the same in the same way. It doesn't require you to treat different things in the same way. So like one of the Supreme Court's opinions, giving an exemption to you know these people who want to gather and have religious services, is it said, well, people are allowed in hardware stores. More people are allowed in hardware stores than in churches. And so that's discrimination. But the difference is like 
When you go to a hardware store, you don't stand around in large groups and sing. You don't socialize with people at a hardware store. It is a less dangerous environment than a church or a movie theater or any other setting where you have a bunch of people in an auditorium-like setting. Churches, movie theaters, lecture halls, anything that's set up like that is just more likely to spread COVID-19 than a store that you walk into with a mask. You get the hammer and the, and the screws you need or whatever you need from the hardware store, and, and, and then you leave. That's just a less dangerous activity. And so until very recently, I mean, literally up until when, when Amy Tony Barrett got there, the rule was, look, courts should be deferential to public health officials. And if the experts say that activity X is more dangerous than activity Y, we should be really reluctant to second guess those public health officials because judges don't really know that much about public health. Now the rule has become, if you raise a religious objection, at least if you're from the right religion, you're pretty much almost always going to win. And again, like if there is actual discrimination, then yes, that, that should be struck down. But it's not discrimination to say that a hundred people gathering in a room to sing together is more likely to spread COVID-19 than a hundred people over the course of maybe an hour going in and out of a hardware store, buying what they have to buy and then leaving. And finally, you wrote an article, What Biden's First List of Judicial Nominees Tells Us About His Approach to the Courts. What does it tell us? <laughs> um, well, I mean, we've seen two things so far. I mean, he's only named 11 people to the courts. First is that he really cares about racial diversity. And I mean, this is, you know, Obama cared about racial diversity, too. Biden has said he would put a black woman on the Supreme Court, and he is helping make it easier for himself because he nominated three very well-qualified black women to the U.S. Courts of Appeals. So racial diversity is really important to him. The other ask that I've heard a lot from Democratic interest groups is for a kind of experiential diversity. And this is something that President Obama was not so great on. Obama named a lot of prosecutors to the federal bench. He named a lot of law firm partners to the federal bench. And the ask I hear from a lot of Democratic-aligned groups is, there should be more public defenders. There should be more civil rights attorneys. There should be more union side attorneys. There should be more voting rights attorneys. There should be more lawyers who have represented people who need the law to protect them and not just powerful people who are used to the law working in their favor. And what's interesting about Biden's first list of nominees is that there's a lot of public defenders on it. What I did not see, and you know, we'll see if this comes in, in su subsequent batches, is whether he's also going to nominate voting rights attorneys and civil rights attorneys and people who sue corporations for a living, people like that who I think are more likely to garner significant objections from Republicans. But based on the first list, he's listening to the people who are saying that they want to see a very well-qualified, racially diverse list of judges and he also seems to be listening at least somewhat to the folks saying, and we want them to have done something other than represent the most powerful people. Ian Milhauser, thank you so much for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Your book, The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America, is published by Columbia Global Reports. We very much appreciate your work. 
All right. Thank you. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been author and legal journalist at Vox.com, Ian Milheiser. His latest book is The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America, just published by Columbia Global Reports. We have spoken critically about Republicans in this interview, and particularly judges appointed by Republicans. So it is fitting to remind listeners that there was a time when Republican did not mean what it means today. Reports of the death of John Topping at the age of 77 on March 9, 2021, are a reminder of Republicans who held to a different ideology and ethos of power. John Topping was a former official of the Environmental Protection Agency and a Republican activist on global warming when it was an issue with bipartisan and support. According to the New York Times, from which I quote, he would join the Reagan administration, first at the Presidential Personnel Office and then at the Environmental Protection Agency, where he served from 1982 until 1986. During his time at the agency, he threw himself into such efforts as removing lead from gasoline and establishing standards for particulate air pollution, as well as studying the risks of secondhand smoke. James Hansen introduced John Topping to climate issues issues in 1982, when the Ronald Reagan administration tried to cut his funding for research into carbon dioxide and climate change. John Topping got the research funded, but the gains were only temporary. And John Topping was so disturbed to discover that by his count, only seven people at the EPA out of some 13,000 staff members were assigned to work on climate change and ozone depletion, that he finally formed his own organization the Climate Institute. It's widely considered the first non-governmental entity directed to addressing climate change. John Topping served as its president until his death. Through the Institute, he worked on building a global partnership to deal with planetary warming, playing a part in the process that culminated in the creation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1988. We also remember the life of LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, an elder of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, who when she learned of the Dakota Access Pipeline, what she called the Black Snake, she volunteered the use of her land to establish a resistance camp. She said that the pipeline would veer too close to sacred burial grounds and violated long-standing treaties between sovereign Native nations and the federal government. She established the sacred stone camp on her land at Standing Rock at the confluence of the Cannonball and Missouri Rivers in March of 2016. It grew into a global center of resistance to fossil fuels in general and pipelines in particular. LaDonna Brave Bull Allard died on April 10th at her home in Fort Yates, North Dakota. The cause was brain cancer. She was 64. And finally, we honor the memory of Ramsey Clark, attorney general and rebel with many causes, who died on April 9th, 2021 at the age of 93. 
In becoming the nation's top law enforcement official, Ramsey Clark was part of an extraordinary father and son trade-off in the federal halls of power. His appointment prompted his father, Supreme Court Justice Tom C. Clark, to resign to avoid the appearance of any conflict of interest involving cases in which the federal government might come before that bench. To fill Justice Clark's seat, President Lyndon B. Johnson appointed Thurgood Marshall, who became the first African American to serve on the Supreme Court. Under the limited laws then available, Ramsey Clark sued to prevent employment discrimination. He oversaw the drafting of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1968, which addressed housing discrimination. He also ordered a moratorium on federal execution and prison construction, banned wiretaps in criminal cases, and refused to enforce a law that was intended to countermand the Supreme Court's restrictions on the questioning of criminal suspects under the so-called Miranda Law. He championed civil rights and liberties as Attorney General in the Johnson administration, and then he devoted much of the rest of his life to defending unpopular causes and infamous people including Saddam Hussein and others accused of war crimes. We quote some of his aphorisms. A great many people in this country are worried about law and order, and a great many people are worried about justice. But one thing is certain. You cannot have either until you have both. John Topping, LaDonna Brave Bull Ballard, Ramsey Clark, Presente. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radios by going to our website, forthright.media. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, signing out for now. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.